Welcome to the Reinventing Education podcast, podcast, podcast. This is a podcast for anyone who's interested in reinventing what education is. Today, we'll be looking at behavior management, aka discipline and assessment in a traditional school that is informed by the value of security. I'm Rob McLeod, and as always, joined by the impressively illustratorialists. How can you say someone's good at illustrations? Brendan O'Leary. How are you, Brennan? Onwards and upwards. I'm doing well. Uh, rainy in Belgium. It has been for the last few days here. But uh, very interested to get into our conversation today and also to, to discuss our reverse sponsorship. But maybe I'm putting the, the cart before the horse here. How are you? Um, you're not doing too bad. In terms of the schooling, you know, we're, we're in what you might call the mid-year morass where, you know, we talk a lot about values on the show and you see a lot of people kind of in this period of the year reverting or due to tiredness and busyness kind of moving back to the values maybe that they were at at the beginning of the year. And so it's really interesting to try and have those conversations with people and to see how much progress we've made in terms of our plans this year and a little bit try to make those values explicit, especially when they pop up uh, in a way that kind of takes us, maybe feels like we're going a little bit backwards. So if someone is very traditionally minded or more of that opportunity mindset and you see that come out to an extent that mm, actually this is taking us a little bit away from where we were hoping to go, having a lot of those kind of discussions and not just with other people, with myself too. It's like, hey, we had some plans. We've been making some plans this year and and they kind of rely on us being a little bit more open to those other values. Yeah. During times, I think, of tiredness or the other extreme, busyness and stress, that's when we end up kind of doubling down on the value we're with and, and any goodwill we have towards the other values that inform what education looks like. Some of that kind of gets set to the wayside. I, I don't have any like profound things right now to discuss about my schooling, other than on Friday, it was uh, the carnival celebration, the German carnival celebration where everyone dresses up, kind of like Mardi Gras type of thing. It's, I think it's in a similar vein. And our staff dressed up as flowers. I didn't have a good flower costume, so I just went and bought two discount Philanopsis orchids and literally just taped them to my biceps. And according to both staff and children, it was the most appreciated and enjoyed costume of of the whole day. So that that's my in-school story for this week. It is cool. I, I do like the German fashion kind of carnival thing. I hadn't experienced it until I went to Germany. And um, it's like Halloween in February. <laughs> it's fun. It's a lot of fun. It is. Halloween and, and a lot more lively than Halloween too. Like there's a lot of games. There's like, it's really focused around music and a lot of dancing. Like it's a really truly joyous celebration. And interesting to hear how it's celebrated differently across Germany. I was speaking to one uh, student teacher is at her school and she was from the south of Germany and she said, if I remember this correctly, I think the Thursday is when it began down there um, and I think goes until the Tuesday. So sort of like a five-day party. And on the Thursday, they would maybe have their first two classes and then all of a sudden people from the town, like adults from the town itself, and it's a relatively small town from what she said, they would break into the school and you know, everyone's in on this. It's not a shock, but like it's part of the tradition. Break into the school, gather up all the teachers, lock them in the staff room, and these people from around town would take the kids to different games, events, and parties around town. And I just thought that's mind-blowingly awesome. And you'd never, ever see something like that in Ontario where I came from. And it's like, you know, that's a cool, interesting, unique tradition. And you could tell that people think of this fondly and love it. Yeah. And in th- that kind of 
periodic irreverence to authority is so it's so em- embedded in like feudal medieval culture you know you have the which is where carnival arose from which i think is cool that even in 2020 you still have some of that fragrance of its yeah lots of fun so onwards and upwards into this episode you shared with me a video today uh which was so in line with the reinventing education kind of uh philosophy i was like is this has this dude been kind of like uh spying on us but clearly we've been spying on him i think what we're talking about on this podcast the influence of values or stages of development on what institutions or processes look like i think that's just in the air now you know i've been into integral theory for the better part of i don't know 10 or more years now and you know i've been peeking around at this kind of stuff and you see glimpses of it every now and then but i just feel that we're beginning to see this pop up more and more as we look at politics, as we look at business, as we look at leadership, just the importance of understanding there are different value systems operating in an ecosystem together these days. And the video we're talking about is by Stephen McIntosh. He's an author who has a new book out. Clearly, I'm not a professional radio DJ here because I didn't have the name of the book right handy. Here it is, Developmental Politics, How America Can Grow into a better version of itself. And yeah, this video is starting to make the rounds on the social media that I'm a part of. The video is called Developmental Politics Simplified in Five Minutes. And I would say that this video is kind of like the reinventing education of talking about how these value systems impact political polarization. And he talks about the need for having a greater cultural intelligence. The same way emotional intelligence has kind of become an important word in the last decade or so, he's sort of introducing this new idea that cultural intelligence is important. And he lays out the same three values we do of a traditional modernist and progressive or postmodernist value system and exactly what you and I have been doing. He lays out the babies in the bathwaters, what the gifts are of each that we don't want to lose, but also the downsides, the drawbacks, the bathwater that each value on its own brings and uh, that we want to leave behind. And he kind of makes a case for a post-progressive value or as we've been calling an integration value, or teal or yellow if you're into spiral dynamics or the integral stages of development. And he basically says, you know, at at that stage, which is what he's arguing we need at this time of polarization, you see the gifts of each value system, but you're using your your cultural intelligence to move beyond the the bathwater or the drawbacks. Yeah, and it does seem that there's something in the air. And Essentially, what he's saying about these three value systems is very much in line with what we are saying, and we're applying it to schools. He's applying it to politics in the wider world. So, yeah, check out Stephen McIntosh, especially the video we'll link in the description today. He really nails, in a nutshell, if you like, what we're all about. On that, Rob McLeod, it brings us to a part of the show that you're very excited about. In a nutshell. Now, I had to go last episode at trying to nail down in as few words as possible what we are about. Now, I'm tossing that tennis ball back to you. You ready for the challenge? I am. I wrote it out in my head while walking my baby son in the woods yesterday, but I didn't do my homework and actually sit down and write it out in a Google Doc. So we'll see how how well I pull this off. All righty. What do you need from me? Just a kind word and a smile. Rob McLeod, you're a great man and you know what you're doing. Off you go. So here on Reinventing Education, we want to take a serious look at 
changes to education, but not just surface level changes. We want to look at the core values that are influencing what education looks like. So let's begin with what education is. And we're essentially saying that it, an education has three aims. The three aims of education are to get somebody ready for the job market, to get them ready for occupational preparation. That's number one. Number two, to get them ready to be a member of a larger social community or their social development, make them their, their cultivation of citizenship, if you will. And third, on the individual level, to help them develop as a person, to help them to grow, mature, perhaps find their strengths and, and, and be a source of, of development and support for them to, to grow as an individual. So those are the three aims of an education, occupational preparation, cultivation of citizenship, and self-development. Now, the way that we have been going about doing that for the last 200 years or so has been through schools. And Brennan and I here on the show, we're arguing that there have actually been really three kinds of school emerge over the last 200 years. And the first is a traditional version of school. Now, we're not saying there weren't schools before the Prussian model came along, but we are saying roughly 200 years ago, humanity began a new experiment where we said everybody in a country, male, female, regardless of social status, gets an education in a school provided by the state. This is a new cultural experiment. And the way that first look was informed by the security value, as we've called it, or if you're into spiral dynamics or the work of Ken Wilber or Frederick Lelou, we would call this the blue stage or the amber stage. That informed what an education looked like for a very long time, for about the first hundred years or so of school. Roughly a hundred years ago, a new value started to come online, and it shifted the power balance from all of the power being in the hands of the authority of the teacher or the state to bringing more power to the child. And that power specifically looked at the child's autonomy to perform and achieve against a specific curriculum with specific objectives. And this also developed more complex forms of assessment. And this was in service of, of calculating merit. And this second value, you could call a modern school or a mainstream school nowadays, this was informed by the opportunity value. And the opportunity value is essentially a meritocracy that's wanting to make sure that your merit provides you opportunity. In more recent years, a more progressive approach to education has been emerging. And this again has shifted the power from the teachers and putting more of that into the students' hands. And as it's done so, it's kind of taken this one-sized-fits-all curriculum of the mainstream school and said, there are elements everybody needs, but everybody has their own path. And your responsibility in this system is to create your own educational journey. And this aligns to some degree with the green value of spiral dynamics or the integral stages of development. And I failed to mention the modernist or mainstream approach aligns with the orange value of both of those systems. And essentially what Brennan and I are saying is that each of these approaches to education have definite benefits. And that's essentially what this podcast has become, us going into depth about the babies, if you will, of each of these value systems. And at the same time, each of these value systems on their own have huge drawbacks and huge bathwater that we wish to set aside. And similar to this Stephen McIntosh video we were just discussing, what we want to do is present an integration value or a post-progressive value that goes back to those three previous iterations of education that are informed by very different core fundamental values 
and we want to take the strongest parts of all three and bring them forward, not in a rigid manner, but rather in a flexible manner to best suit the context that we find ourselves in as teachers, with students, within communities, within different environments, and within different value systems we might be surrounded by. And to be able to use parts of those different values to inform what an education looks like. And here on Reinventing Education, we're saying that those three value systems inform the eight aspects of school. And those eight aspects of school can be found both in the interiors of the individuals, but also in the interiors of the collectives. We also find these eight aspects of school in the exteriors of individual things and the exteriors of collective things. Now, that sounds pretty wordy, but essentially here are the eight aspects of school. If we start with the interior of the individual, one of the aspects are the beliefs of each individual person. Second, the personal reactions of each individual person. All people, all stakeholders involved in the school experience. Second, if we shift to the interior of the collective, we have to look at the cultures of the different groups in education. That's the third. The fourth being the communities. So who are the different overlapping groups within those collectives? Who are in those groups? Who comprises them? What are their norms? And so on. A fifth aspect of education to look at, which is one of the most common, are the actual practices that we do. What are we spending our time doing while at school? A sixth are the resources. Now, this can be living or non-living resources. So who are the people that are involved and what are the things we are using to make the school or the education happen? And then finally, the exteriors of the collectives. Seven, we're talking about the environment, so the actual physical spaces that we're referring to. Now, traditionally, this has been a school campus, but as we continue to evolve in society and in education, the actual physical spaces are not necessarily located all in one area anymore, but we are referring to the environments where this education takes place. And finally, the eighth aspect, the systems. So how all of these things are organized. And here on our show, we essentially believe everyone in education at their core has the best interests in their mind and in their heart for students. However, what an education looks like what is happening in those eight aspects we just talked about, that is informed by the values that someone holds. And the more you begin to speak with people in education, you can begin to see that more or less they kind of hover around one of those three values, the value of security in a traditional school, the value of opportunity in a mainstream school, or the value of inclusion in a progressive school. And here on our podcast, we're attempting to bring about more of this integration value, which I guess you could say would be in a post-progressive or some kind of an integral school. And we believe that that is the most important one at this time. You know, we're, we're willing to put our cards on the table. That is the value we are coming from and we're informed by. And sure, we've got some biases towards, but the reason I hold that belief is just looking at the living conditions our kids are entering and looking at the starter pack we're handing and giving them for the VUCA world, a world of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And I think looking at those four values of security, opportunity, inclusion, and integration, that integration value that provides the most flexibility and the most context-specific approaches, that's the one that is best suited for our children entering this complex world today. It's a big nutshell, O'Leary, but that's my attempt at in a nutshell. 
Yeah, thank you. That's uh, we. You got a lot of depth in there. There's a lot of nuance, but I think anyone that's new to the show will get a lot out of listening to that. And I'm interested to hear those people who have now heard that for the tenth, twelfth time. Please skip past it. Or is this helping you as a listener to get more of an idea of where we're at? Who knows? I was also going to drop in. I guess on some level. You're going to be presenting fairly soon at the uh, Integral Conference, and this is more or less going to be, this is going to make up a, a very large part of what you're going to say. There's five minutes of my 20-minute talk right there. Nice. Okay, so we've been, for quite a while now, about six or seven episodes, dipping into dipping into the traditional school, we call it the security-minded school, the old-school traditional school that we have in our minds from years and years back, and we've dug into many different aspects of it. We did a, we did a thought experiment where we visited the school virtually and in today's episode we want to look specifically at the management of behavior and how teachers and how the school deals with the negative behaviors of students what they might call discipline and then a little bit later we'll look into this idea of assessing work or grading or so do you want to take it take it away with a with behavior management rob Boy, do I. So if we go back to a traditional school, and for most of us, this is kind of the imagery that comes to mind, I think, when we think of school. We're picturing a teacher who's handing out work for students to do. In terms of behavior management, the the expectation is that a student will do their duty, which is to do the work that is asked of them. It's the teacher's duty to provide the work, to provide the lesson, the instruction, and it's the duty of the student to put in their head or to do their work. So behavior in terms of academics, basically, what you're going to see is the teacher doing some kind of teaching and then giving them work to do. And it's just your duty to do it because we're training you to be a responsible person who follows through on the tasks that they are asked to do because that's who you need to be in the future. It's for your own good, but not only your own good, it's also for the good of everybody. We need you to be a member of our society that we can rely on and count on coming from this security value. We we need to be secure and certain you are going to uphold your role and duty in society. Now, in terms of the behavior that's expected, a lot of people coming from this security value, there's often this mention of respect, certainly a respect for teachers, you know, and that can take many different forms. Maybe it's the way they address them, the words that they use, that sort of thing. But there is often this real like, kind of beautiful sense of caring and a real sense of family. So you are supposed to get along with your peers, for example. Now, if you're not following that, there are certainly consequences. And, and being bad or being out of alignment with what you're expected to do, or worse yet, refusing to do what is asked of you, is certainly going to be punished. And the consequences are typically punitive. So there may be some some kind of shaming, you know, in the extreme historical case, we had the dunce cap where you would sit in the corner with a hat and you'd basically be publicly ridiculed. I feel this is only like one step away from having your head in the wooden blocks and having apples thrown at you. This is like the slightly more humane version. Um, but up until recently, and even in 2020, physical punishment can be dealt out. We've heard horrible stories, horrific stories in the past of canings and whippings and belts and all these sorts of things. And there is a bit of this sense of like, this is for your own good. And you know what? If you're not going to follow through on your duty, you need to know that the consequences are coming fast and swift. There's not much gray area here. You're not going to set a bad example for the others. We're going to deal with you promptly, quickly, and it's going to be probably abrupt. There's not going to be many warnings going to this. And if there is a warning, it's probably a threat more so than a warning. And also there is the possibility that some of the consequences might be that some of the good things that you like are taken away. You, you miss out on a recess or you miss out 
on a class party or you can't go to a dance or you can't go on a field trip, this sort of a thing. So the teacher in authority, they were not necessarily saying they can't control their temper, but there there is an acceptance here of allowing the teacher the authority to be angry, perhaps a shouting or a good telling off in a typical British system. I can just picture that like accent giving someone a good telling off and the finger wagging and whatnot. Um, and I even remember this from when I was younger. Sometimes there'll be the reading out of names at an assembly or over the PA in a school for people to come to the office for their punishment. So these punishments are often not done in private. They're often done publicly to set an example for the others of this is what happens when you get out of line. Are you really sure that you don't want to do what we're asking you to do? So in terms of behavior, essentially it just boils down to do the thing you're being asked to do. And this is actually a pretty reasonably good place. But if you push back and you're not doing what you're being asked to do, there are going to be consequences and and certainly discipline. So there's kind of a lay of the land O'Leary. It sounds bleak. And I think to anybody with a modern sensibility, imagine shoulders were raising and and it sounds quite uncomfortable, but there are are some positives here. Can you distill the babies from the bathwater for us? Yeah, as you say, this strikes most of the modern mindset as something that is very antiquated and not very open to empathetic, not really open to taking on board the feelings of the individual. But the the baby here, the thing that is clear is that there, there are consequences for impulsive or negative behavior. There are consequences for hurting others and there are consequences for disrupting the normal flow of things. And the real reason within traditional societies and traditional schools is that it maintains order. If we let people hurt each other up and down the hierarchy, and if we let people disrupt the natural flow of things, then things begin to fall apart. We have a very security-minded system here that wants things to work as they should, and that hierarchy is really important, which is why it is okay for the teacher to get angry at the student or the parent to get angry at the child doesn't go the other way. It's a one-way flow, and this is to maintain the order. On top of that, the belief within the system is that it, it will build you into that, that fine citizen. They're building your future self into a good and right and proper person that is going to continue to maintain this order. Now, the thing is that the other value systems generally all agree with the idea of consequences for negative behavior. But the trouble is the what and the why and the how. And so I guess we move on to the bathwater. So what are the negatives here of this particular form of behavior management? Sure. So both a mainstream school and a progressive school, they're still going to have to have protocol and approaches for dealing with disruptive or negative behavior. But what we would see in the traditional school, the security-minded school, is heavy reliance on shame, especially like a social shame. And that's that's really the main strategy that it relies on to deal with some of these issues. And there may be a place for shame. I don't know if shame's the right word, though. I think it's just more like highlighting the effects on others, perhaps, and, and bringing self-awareness to things. The problem with shame over time, though, is it leads to negative cycles and eventually like the hiding of problems. Because if you're aware that problems you're having can lead to shaming, especially public shaming, you may just end up hiding issues over time, which then creates a larger issue. Um, And it's perhaps not helping kids move out of the previous stage of development. And you and I, we touch on this very 
very briefly in episodes, but we often reference spiral dynamics or the integral stages of development, and we kind of start at this blue or amber value because that's essentially where schooling, at least statewide schooling, has emerged from. But there are stages prior to these, and one of them is this kind of red stage or this more impulsive worldview or impulsive value um, that essentially is organized around power rather than security. And there is a case to be made that some of these security-minded values do work well to solve some of these issues, but they're not the only palette of possible solutions, and they might not actually be at times the best fit for dealing with that previous red or power-based value. Um, Some of the criticisms or complaints from a mainstream or kind of opportunity-minded school, they value that things are fair across the board. And quite often in this traditional system, punishments don't fit the crime. They might be unjust or illogical and essentially left up to the authority figure to be kind of judge, jury, and executioner on. Like if a teacher catches you doing something you're not allowed to, there there may be protocols that you must follow, but often the punishments, you can just kind of choose what this kid is going to face and how severe the punishment is. So it may be unjust or illogical when you compare it to how teachers are handling a larger set of students. And as well from the inclusion value, or the more progressive approach to education, they want to see a more restorative approach and take into account the reasons for the behavior. And often this traditional value assumes that symptoms of a deeper cause are the thing that need to be dealt with. And I think by the time you get both to the progressive approach, but also to the opportunity approach to education, we see authority taking time to try and dig deeper and find out why this behavior is happening. And especially at the inclusion value, they'd want to see this as an opportunity for some kind of restoration, growth, introspection, self-development. They want to see this as an opportunity rather than just a disruption that needs to be pushed away and erased quickly. And we, you've dug into this a bit, Brendan. You've got um, a few links that I think we should put in the show notes to talk about um, sort of the bathwater of this traditional approach, talking about corporal punishment and uh, the effect of you know physical uh, corrections with students like spanking and uh, things like that. Do you want to touch on those at all? Yeah, I th- I, uh, for the last few episodes, I've been trying to back up what we're saying a little bit because I think we do a lot of reading, a lot of talking. It's just good to cite people specifically. And so I started off with a set off with a link to a Huff, Huffington Post article that was talking about the idea of spanking. And this led to some work by a, um, by a psychologist called Elizabeth Thompson Gershoff, who essentially says there's a very strong correlation as, as students grow up, as children grow up, between negative behavior and spanking. So not only does does it not work? It actually, according to this research, reinforces negative behavior. So I went one step beyond that and said, does any punitive punishment work? And you know, the obvious thing from our point of view is no, I'm pretty sure it doesn't, but what does the research say? And so specifically this um, this Psychology Today article by Michael Carson that cites uh, some research by Bhutan and Shepherds that basically says lab rats, they'll avoid pain, but only in certain contexts. So if you actually change the punishment, if you change where it's done, it no longer has the same effect and essentially they're just trying to avoid pain and it doesn't stop any of the negative behaviors and in fact they relapse into those behaviors very very quickly as soon as the context changes so everything seems to suggest that punitive punishment not only leads to further negative behavior it leads to what we said might happen where people avoid showing or dealing with problems and then on 
on top of this, it will not it will not change behaviors. It will simply mask them and hide them. And then even if people stop with this negative behavior, they will relapse into it very, very quickly as soon as the context changes. So all the research teams seems to suggest that this traditional method of discipline and behavior isn't actually a very successful long-term strategy. Yeah, and I think that's a key idea right there, that it's not an effective long-term strategy. It might work that day, that hour, finish a lesson with a student being more compliant, but long-term, it doesn't seem to hold up. So we've talked about classroom management. We've talked about kind of discipline here. Shall we move on to assessment? Yes. Yeah, so this the concept of what we call assessment in 2020 essentially means how good is the work? It's, it's what we may have called marking or grading, but it's a wider term than that because it's basically can be used to look at everything students do and to see how they're moving along and progressing towards certain goals or meeting certain benchmarks. So in a traditional school, this would essentially just be testing. And the purpose is more or less to check if you've done your duty of learning. It's less about growth or even or even real achievement. It's just about have you done your duty of learning what you have been asked to learn. And so sometimes the test might be announced and planned months in advance. So they may be a pop quiz. And the, the, the reason often behind the pop quiz is kind of to stress that you should always be ready. You should always be doing what the teacher asks you because at any time these tests could strike. And in a way, it also stresses the authority of the teacher. Now, the way that this testing and assessment might look is that it will often be based heavily on mechanical skills, memorization. So this could be vocabulary, it could be grammar. In math, it might be arithmetic. It's about conventions, it's about naming things. And if we know about the Bloom's taxonomy, about levels of levels of understanding, it's down in the lower levels of just knowing and remembering. You may not, yeah, you, th- there's not even particularly a huge stress on the comprehension. It's about knowing and saying and repeating. And we talked about this banking model before where information is deposited into the student's head and then it is withdrawn in these kind of test situations. Now, in terms of Bloom's taxonomy, there's the higher levels where you apply this knowledge and you synthesize it with other pieces of information to do things. See this much more in progressive schools. But here we see these tests and they're very much based on rote learning and memorization. Now, this is not the same as the standardized testing that you might find in a, in a mainstream school because teachers in this traditional system are very much in control of their own tests. They're almost on their own island. And this is very much in line with this idea that they are the authority and they know they're the master passing on their knowledge. And to an extent, that has been historically true and may still be true in some contexts today. So often these tests, when they happen, how they happen is at the discretion of individual teachers and also how they are graded and how those grades are substantiated and how they're documented. Also at the discretion or whim of a teacher. And so what you might end up seeing is within a particular grade level or within a particular school, widely different assessments or tests being given even across a single grade. So a grade may have three different classes in it. There may be three grade two classes in a particular school and every one of them may be doing a completely different test. And so, Rob, what are some of the positives that we might take away from this traditional testing model of assessment and grading? So one of the the babies here is that we want students to receive ongoing feedback about what they've studied and test scores are a way to provide this. And in fact, in our last episode, we touched on this a little bit about the importance of receiving feedback. Now, I have to admit, in some situations where I've seen teachers who are informed by this traditional approach, they actually do the most amount of marking and the most amount of returning work to students out of the other 
out of any of these three values. And in fact, it almost seems slightly counterintuitive because you think the opportunity value with its emphasis on assessment and feedback and whatnot, you know, would be giving some kind of feedback after every lesson. I know teachers who are in this traditional mindset that mark the work from nearly every class every single day. And I think that's one of the things they do to, to uphold that security value so that the students know that every lesson they are taking part in, they are being held accountable to uphold their duty of their work because that teacher's on top of them marking their work every single day. And if it's not a mark, it's at least a check to ensure that the student has upheld their duty. So we do want that level of commitment and that level of attention coming from teachers. Just perhaps if you come from a different value, you want that to look different or the, th the criteria you're looking for, the feedback you're giving, you would want to look different. As well in this, from the teacher's perspective, it is actually, again, almost counterintuitive that at this traditional value, the security value, there's a lot of freedom being given to that individual teacher. There's a real trust that you're going to use your common sense. You're going to uphold your duty and do what's best for those kids in your classroom. And we, and we trust that when that door closes, you're kind of the king or queen of that room. So there is a lot of freedom for professional opinion and personal discernment to best meet the needs of students. And this is something that we often lose as we shift up into that opportunity value. Often teachers are just straight up required to follow a program, whether they believe in it or not. They're required to teach to a test, whether they believe in it or not. They're, you know, the way that they teach is dictated to them by a school's approach at times. And we lose some of that individual calling of the shots, some of that individuality that you find in this kind of traditional school that at times we lose as we shift into that next value of school. So those are some of the positives. We do want teachers involved and upholding their duty and, and being in contact with students around assessment. And we do want teachers to exercise their best judgment. But that's us slightly grasping at straws. There are many drawbacks to this traditional approach. And Brendan, what are some of those? Yes. Yeah, so the best we can say is that, hey, the fact that you're checking that your kids know stuff is good. It's as soon as we say like, yeah, but how are you doing that? And why are you doing it? That things start to get a little bit, a little bit less, less uh, positive, less good, bad, see me. And one of the things is that just using assessments or tests as a way to just kind of like put pressure on you to say, hey, I'm here, I'm watching, don't take your foot off the gas. Where, you know, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of another way to just say, this is your duty. This is what you have to do. Whereas the, the mainstream school would say, no, the reason for testing and assessing is to check if the students are progressing against specific criteria. So this kind of brings us to the next thing of there's no real accountability for the teacher. And standardized testing can be argued that it takes it too far. And when we get to that stage, we will make the argument too. But at least it has that consistency that across grades, even across entire nations, students are being assessed on the same fairly clear criteria. And one of the problems here is when different classes, different teachers are assessing in completely different ways and maybe don't even have clear and specific criteria that they're marking against, it starts to be very clear that there's no consistency and therefore you can't really track progress or build towards anything. And so a mainstream school would just say that these inconsistencies are, again, they're not logical, they're not firm, they don't help us to build towards things. And a more progressive school would, would say, well, there's no meaning in what you're testing here. There's no individualization and the criteria, if it even exists, doesn't seem to be leading towards any kind of personal growth. It's a very, very narrow set of things that we're looking at. So both of the other, the other value systems 
systems would have a real issue with the way the way these tests happen and the content of these tests. So the the final kind of bathwater possibly is just going back to what is tested. And if you're only going to test memorization, you're only going to test those conventions in the most narrow context possible. They're of no use. The students cannot then take them. One of the next levels up in Bloom's taxonomy is application. So I know, I know these verbs. Hey, can you use them in a sentence? Uh, maybe. Well, the way communication works is that you use verbs in sentences. And so you being able to list them or match them without being able to use them in a sentence is of no use whatsoever. So yes, subject knowledge is really important and having those skills is important. But once again, we're not putting them into any kind of practice. And we've said this previously when we talked about the traditional model of teaching. Again, I dug in a little bit into whether there is any positives into this way of testing. So one of the things we see a lot of is the spelling test. Traditionally, you get your 10 words, you come back the next week, you learn them. Now, Rebecca Putman, who's a, a professor at Tarleton State in Texas, she wrote, uh, and again, we'll link this, she wrote an article about how rote learning of spelling just does not work. And the science says that children learn spelling through application and context and abstract patterns of spelling. And now, the, um, we've used a program in our schools called Words Their Way, which, which is very popular across North America and Europe and works on this idea of students learning more of the patterns of words rather than just memorizing lists. And so this article gives a, a bunch of ideas of what you can do to move away from those, those much more specific memorization kind of assessments and tests into learning uh, through application and pattern. So once again, I think it seems to back up the fact that this kind of idea, which may have been of its time, doesn't really hold up very strongly in 2020. Yeah, and you started to hit on a few things. I, I admit I didn't uphold my duty, Brandon. I, I missed a few other points at the bottom of my list I wanted to mention there. So I'll throw, the, I'll throw them in here now because I think it connects to what you're saying. In these assessments, the, the focus at times in this traditional school might not be on specific skills. There might not actually be clarity of these skills because they haven't been articulated perhaps in a curriculum or even just in terms of the way that some of these assessments have been planned. So typically you'll see that like themes or topics that have been studied make up the test, but the actual skills required might be the same skills all year long. It might be we do 12 different units. We do weather and we do, you know, our community and we do, you know, emotions. But every time it just ends up being a 10 word spelling test. Can you spell these 10 emotions? Can you spell these 10 types of weather or whatnot? That those same skills are being what's used time and time again. Now, there may be some articulation of how students are being marked. So often you might see a checklist in um, a traditional assessment so that students understand first what they have to have, and then second, sort of what they'll be dinged on if they don't include it. But often the difficulty is that with these checklists, it's not really clear perhaps to the student or even indicated for that matter how a mark is substantiated or given. So when a student hands their work in, there might still be this bit of a Wizard of Oz effect where their work and this checklist go behind a curtain and then they get it back and you know they've got an A or a B or a C on their work but it's not really clear from the checklist to that mark how that was generated and as well that classwork just the stuff you've been doing on a topic basically you know the end of the units here when it's the test your kind of summative test that's the the end point of a unit that's how everything culminates and finally the tests are more there as like a 
book end, I guess, uh, to the end of a unit. And we're not necessarily tracking the skills across a unit or even across a year or grade for that matter. It's just sort of like when we get to the end of the unit, this is when we have the test and that's it. And as I said, again, those skills that are being involved in the assessment, you may be relying on one skill too much or there might be only just a handful of skills you use and you're missing out on a lot of those. You mentioned higher order skills, but just communication skills in general. Maybe everything ends up with, you know, a listening assessment where you have to listen to a dialogue and tick some boxes or whatnot. So the actual skills of thinking, ways of demonstrating understanding aren't evolving or changing over the year. Yeah, and I think one thing you do see more as you get into the mainstream opportunity value is that beginning to to acknowledge the range of skills and to start trying to make sure that all of them are all of them are, are covered and taught over the course of the years. So you start to begin to see more of that that spread and that balance. And you touched on this idea of the summative as in the very last thing you do that sums up everything you learned in the unit. And as you get into opportunity mainstream schools and as you get into more progressive inclusion schools, you will see much more moving towards a formative as in what are you learning day by day and how are we tracking that? How are we measuring that? How are we moving towards where we want to go? Every teacher does formative assessment. Traditional teachers do it too. You see a kid in front of you who can't do something, you do something about it. That's formative assessment. But then again, in these traditional schools, the only thing that really matters is that score on the on the test and you might argue the same thing in a mainstream school too to some extent the only thing that matters is that that number as you get to the more inclusion value and into the integration value it's not the only thing that matters in fact it probably matters less than your process and how you're doing because that is the thing that's going to move you forward uh, into the future so yes it- yeah no i, I want to throw in just one dystopian anecdote because we've ended our last few episodes with dystopian anecdotes um this comes second hand through a teacher that i spoke with who had found themselves in a more traditional type of a school. Now, I would argue that the issue that I'm going to be discussing here is more of an issue of how does the traditional school try to approach the opportunity school and its demands for assessment. Um, But in service of security, and specifically that you don't start having parents knocking down the doors or beginning to question teachers too much, there was actually, I think they called it the fail burner question that was included on tests. And because all teachers had their choice of what was going on tests. The teachers had kind of agreed, and everyone seemed okay with this, that everyone agreed on it on any given test. There'd be one question that would be worth a fair number of marks that would be easy, and I guess another way to say that is significantly below that unit or that grade's expectation, to ensure that no kid did too poorly on the assessments. And it kind of leveled out the lower end of the bell curve to make sure that even the worst off students didn't get a completely failing grade. Sure, they they had a lower mark, but they weren't like getting 0% on on a test or something like that, because that would begin to raise a lot of eyebrows about how this kid got there. Um, You know, the teacher might be safe in that security value of just being blamed on the student, of not doing their duty, of needing to know what they needed to know. But it was interesting that it's sort of like, well, here's a technique that this traditional kind of school can use to get around some of those questions of their perhaps merit or competencies or or abilities as teachers, perhaps. So it's just interesting to see that in this sort of security-minded value in these traditional schools, there were we're not we're not saying everything's upholding duty. There are, there are a few sneaky tactics to get in here to make sure that we don't get too many questioning minds that would start us down rabbit holes or slippery slopes of having to explain practice or what we're doing. Yeah, and I. Th- 
think the, the, the softball question is a tactic that each of the values would use for different reasons. And in the, in the inclusion value, it would be so nobody feels too bad about scoring low on the test, maybe. And in this particular traditional value, it's like, so nobody asks too many questions about what the teacher is up to, maybe. It's and on the flip side of that, too, the traditional value typically also has the one question. I've heard some traditional-minded teachers actually use the term an equalizer, which is actually the opposite of this fail burner question, which is also to make sure that not everybody gets an A, because that might also raise suspicions about, was this test too easy? So often, usually it's the last question. There is one question that all of a sudden jumps the Bloom's taxonomy scale you mentioned and goes from these lower level, just kind of repeat back the names of the states or spell these words properly, and then jumps to this really high level like question like, let's say you were, you know, if, you, if we had a test on the states or something like that, name the states or provinces in your country, then all of a sudden like, let's say you were king or president of the country how might you redesign the states to ensure that you know economic goods are shared between and it's like we barely even touched on that we didn't discuss that and all of a sudden you're asking us to do something we have not had any practice at but the idea is hey if you can pull off a good answer for that you've really got this stuff mastered so you deserve those extra five points and the a plus that you get and if you didn't it's a little bit of a leveler just to say well not everyone's getting a's in this test so those are the two tasks i've seen on both ends of the of the spectrum of the assessment yeah it's a beautiful it's a beautiful way to narrow that bell curve <laughs> but um let's wrap it up there then rob so that was an interesting discussion thank you for that i'll go away and i'll i'll dwell on those things looking forward into the next episode we'll come back to the traditional school and look a little bit more at some other aspects particularly over the next few weeks looking at how the community is involved and how parents are involved um all right take it easy rob thanks rob bye Neat the meat.